0: Hey, so good to see you, family. Let me ask you a question as we get going. How do you deal with messiness in life? Okay, how do you deal with messiness in life? Messy spaces, messy people, messy relationships, messy situations. How do you deal with that? Are you one of those just free, floating, happy hippies who just kind of embraces the mess? Or are you a finicky, neat freak? who's got to control the mess. Which side are you on? You team hippie, you team neat freak. Which one are you on? I, I used to think of myself as one of the hippies. I used to think that I was pretty easygoing. I can handle any kind of mess in life. Just, just roll with it. But as I've gotten older, I've realized, no, I'm pretty finicky. I'm pretty much a neat freak. I need things clean and neat and drama-free in every area of my life i I just need that it's probably because i'm swedish okay i don't know if you've ever seen swedish design it is clean neat and drama free um i don't know if you've ever met swedish people they are clean neat and drama free in other words boring that's what we are in sweden i've never been but apparently they have this this concept they call logum okay I kind of grew up with this infusing my my Swedish family. Logum is this concept in Sweden that everybody tries to attain, and it just means not too much, not too little, just right. Just, Just the middle of the road. That's what every Swedish person wants in life, the middle road. Okay, nobody in Sweden drinks dark roast coffee. Nobody drinks light roast coffee. They drink medium coffee. They love that. Love it. Nobody in Sweden drinks whole milk. Nobody drinks skim milk. They drink 2% milk, and guess what they call it? Medium milk. Oh, yeah, that's really good, medium milk. How do you like your steak, sir? Medium. Where do you want me to set the temperature in the car, honey? Medium. That's what we are always looking for in life. Clean, neat, drama-free. But here's the problem. Life is not clean. Life is not neat. Life is really, really messy. This world is messy. Relationships are messy. People are messy. We are all a mess. That's what we're going to see over the next couple of months, because we're going to get to know the messiest folks in the New Testament, the Corinthians. But we're also going to see the love and grace of Jesus Christ for messy people like the Corinthians, Messy people, messy situations, messy churches. So if you got your Bible, open to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We're going to launch right into it this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. So how do you handle messiness? Do you try and control it? Do you try and ignore it? Do you embrace it? Well, the Corinthians were a hot mess. And Jesus waded right into the mess alongside them. You know why? Because messiness is a sign of life. Only dead people and dead churches make no messes. Right now, there's somebody in your life who is a hot mess. Somebody in your life right now. If you can't think of that person, you're that person. That's kind of the rule of life, right? You're dealing with some kind of mess in life. So are you going to allow Jesus to come help you deal with the mess or not? That's the question Paul's going to be answering, asking the Corinthians. And I can't tell you how much I've been looking forward to launching this study of this book. Because, I mean, I love Romans, I love Ephesians, but this book is so unique. This letter is so unique. It is the most complete, wide-ranging letter that Paul wrote. I think it's the most relevant letter for the world we're living in today. I mean, think about any issue that we're dealing with right now. In our culture, in the church at large, in our lives, Man, Paul is probably going to tackle that issue in this book. Over the last few years, the church in America has been dealing with divisions and conflict, sexuality and gender identity, singleness, marriage, divorce, mysticism versus intellectualism, charismatics versus conservatives, and Paul's going to deal with every one of those issues because the Corinthians were dealing with every one of those issues. Now, if you're new to church new to Christianity, maybe you've got no idea who these people are, the Corinthians. Let me give you just a a quick little bit of context. Corinth was a city in Greece, just south of Athens. There's still a city called Corinth, still to this day, but uh, that city is, it was ancient and it was destroyed by the Romans in 146 BC, but then it was rebuilt by Julius Caesar in 44 BC. You probably had to read Julius Caesar when you were in high school, you remember that? Et tu, Brute, that's the guy. He restarted, rebuilt the city of Corinth just before he was assassinated by Brutus. Rebuilt it. He sent a whole bunch of people to recolonize Corinth along with a whole lot of money. People lived really well in Corinth. Paul came along and he visited Corinth about 100 years after it was rebuilt. By that time, there were 100,000 people living in Corinth. 100,000. That's about the same size as Honolulu, like Metro Honolulu, from downtown to Diamond Head, about the same size. And people came in from all over the empire because it was, just like Honolulu, a major tourist destination. The theater in Corinth held 18,000 people. That's twice as many as the Blaisdell Arena can hold for a concert. It was huge. Along with shows and entertainment, people came to Corinth for sex. It was known as a major sex trafficking hub for the Roman Empire. It was also a major trading and shipping hub uh, just because of its geography. I want to show you how important its location was. We've got a map that you can see. There's Corinth. There's a star right in the middle there, uh, just south of Athens there in Greece. And you can see the Roman Empire there. There were always ships traveling through the Mediterranean from Rome to the west to Greece there in the middle. And then on to Syria and Palestine, what we'd call, you know, Turkey in the Middle East, over in the, the east. They were always going between those three major locations. And uh, the problem was when they had to go south around Greece, that was a terrible route. It was known as kind of like, like the Bermuda Triangle of the Mediterranean. still is like that today. Violent storms, lots of rocks just under the surface. Sailors were terrified of that route to the south of Greece, and so that's where Corinth came in, that, that yellow star there. It was situated on this narrow strip of land, just four miles wide between northern Greece and southern Greece. And so sailors would actually pull their ships into Corinth, drag them out of the water, drag them across four miles of land, and then drop them back in the water on the other side. So every day there would be hundreds of ships inching across the land, right outside of Corinth, which meant every night there were thousands of sailors coming into town. They're eating, drinking, buying supplies, supplies like tents, and that's where Paul came in. He came to Corinth on his second church planting journey. He had just come from Athens, which was just north of Corinth. It's only about a 90-minute drive if you do it today. I've done that drive. That's a little longer when you're walking it. It's not that far from Athens, but Paul was a tent maker by trade. And so when he got to Corinth, he set up shop in the marketplace, making tents, selling tents, telling people about Jesus. And a few years ago, my family got to go visit Corinth. We got to stand in that actual marketplace right where Paul stood. Well, my daughter's a gymnast, so she was jumping through the marketplace. I think we got a slide of that. Here we go. There's Kyra. Yeah, jumping across the marketplace. We got kicked out of Corinth right after that. But we were standing right there, right where she's jumping across. There would have been awnings over that. That was where Paul stood, right there in those shops, right there. We got to stand in the same place. He stayed there for about a year and a half, telling people about Jesus, and enough people put their faith in Jesus that he was able to start a church. Got that church going. Then he sailed off for Ephesus. Then just a few months after he left, he started hearing about big problems, in the church in Corinth, because they were in the middle of this very pagan city, a hyper-sexualized culture, hyper-materialistic culture, hyper-competitive culture. And all of those things in the culture were starting to seep back into the church. Some of the New Testament churches, they were wrestling with opposition from the world around them, not the church in Corinth. They were wrestling with assimilation back To the culture that they came out of, blending back in to this pagan, promiscuous, idolatrous culture, and that's why Paul wrote this letter, because the Corinthians were a mess, man. (laughs) Crazy conflict and division, shocking sexual sin, astounding arrogance. They're a mess, but today we're going to be blown away by the grace and love that Jesus has for messy people like the Corinthians, messy people like us. So let's pray, then we'll dig in. Father, thank you so much for your love for messy people. We are a mess. Some of us just hide it better than others. Either we are actively dealing with a lot of mess in our own lives right now, or we have people in our lives who are messy. We need you come alongside us in our mess. So thank you for this letter that shows how much you love messy people and how much you want to serve and bless messy people by helping us overcome our mess. Your love and grace. Help us to be transformed by Jesus today. It's in his name we pray. Amen. So last week we had a little bit of a Pentecostal moment during our worship. This week we're going to swing the pendulum. We're going to go Presbyterian this Sunday, okay? We're going to stand for the reading of God's Word. You ready for this? Let's stand together. We're going to read God's Word together. You can just listen along, actually. You can you can just follow along as I read 1 Corinthians 1, starting in verse 1. Here's what Paul says. Paul, called as an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will, and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God at Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called as saints with all those in every place who call on the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you. Peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God for you because of the grace of God given to you in Christ Jesus, that you are enriched in him in every way, in all speech and all knowledge, In this way, the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you so that you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. He will also strengthen you to the end so that you will be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful. You were called by him into fellowship with his son Jesus Christ, our Lord. Thanks. You can have a seat. And as we were reading that, I, I don't know, maybe that didn't make a lot of sense to you, knowing what you know about the Corinthian church. Didn't seem like what Paul was saying matches reality. Maybe you're going, wait a minute, Paul. You're saying the Corinthians are sanctified and blameless? No, man, these people are completely unsanctified, unrighteous. You're going, wait a minute, Paul. You're saying the Corinthians are enriched in every way? Yeah, it, it kind of seems like they are morally bankrupt. Like they got nothing going for them. You're saying the testimony of Christ is confirmed in them? No, they've got a terrible witness. They're a terrible witness to the world around them. The testimony of Christ is not confirmed in them. The Corinthians are exactly the opposite of everything that Paul is saying about them. But here's the key to unlocking this letter. Here's the key to unlocking the whole Bible. Here's the key to unlocking your relationship with God. There's a difference between practical reality and positional reality. Practical and positional. There's a difference between what you do and who you are if you're in Christ. It all has to do with who you are in Christ. Right here in 1 Corinthians, Jesus Christ was mentioned nine times In nine verses. Because family, we are in Christ and that changes everything. Changes everything in life. And that's how Paul wants to tackle the messiness in Corinth. That's how he wants to deal with the sin and conflict and confusion. He wants to help them work through the mess by reminding them who they are in Christ. You want to know how to deal with your mess? Whether it's sin, conflict, confusion. Here's how you do it. Remember who you are in Christ. And here's number one, you are called in Christ. That's what Paul said twice, verse 2 and verse 9, you are called. And fun little fact, that's the same exact word in Greek as it is in Hawaiian. Kaleo, same word, means the same thing, to call, to, to voice something. And that's a powerful word that you see all through the New Testament. In 1 Peter 2, it says you're called out of darkness into his marvelous light. Romans 1 says you're called to belong to Christ Jesus. 1 Thessalonians 2 says you're called into his own kingdom and glory. 1 Corinthians 7 says you're called into a realm of peace. The Bible says you're called into freedom, into hope, into holiness. You're called into all of these incredible things. And it's not like it was when you were a kid and your mom called you to dinner. You remember that? It's not like that. Because maybe you were in the middle of a video game. Mom's like, it's dinner time, come on. What would you say? Mom, it's, it's Madden NFL. There's only two minutes left in the half. And then there's the second half. You know, you, when your mom calls, you may or may not come. It's not that way when God calls. When God calls your name, when God calls you into his family, when God calls you into his blessing, you're going to respond. Paul says in Romans 8, those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. So when God calls your name, you respond. You respond because it's a good feeling when your name is called. It's a good feeling. Like remember when you were in elementary school? They are picking teams for whatever they played at recess. It's always a good feeling when your name is called, right? When I was in elementary school, my first elementary school at least, Foursquare was the big thing. You guys remember Foursquare? It was huge in our school. And I was a Foursquare beast, okay? I was so good. Nobody could get me out. I could play all recess every day. I was that good by the time I was in third grade, okay? I dominated the Foursquare court every day. Then the summer before fifth grade, we moved to a new neighborhood, and I went to a new school, and I couldn't wait to show these kids my epic four-square skills, okay? I just knew that once they saw me play four-square, they'd put me up on their shoulders, march me around the playground like I was an MVP in the the Super Bowl, okay? I just knew that's what was going to happen. So first day at school, I'm just waiting all morning. Can't wait for recess to come and go show off my four-square skills, I'm just watching the second hand slowly move. You remember watching the second hand in school? It always went in slow motion, man. You just, come on, move. Well, finally, tick. It went to ten fifteen. The bell rang. Everybody ran out to the playground. And I went out to look for the four-square court. And there was no four-square court. This school didn't play four-square. They played kickball. I was terrible at kickball terrible. On my soccer team, they stuck me in the goal because I was so bad at kicking the ball. Every time I kicked the ball, it would go 90 degrees from where I wanted it to go. I was terrible. So I went out and I, I tried playing kickball. I knew I was terrible, but first pitch, I just whiffed it, like no contact at all. Second, third pitch, the same thing. I struck out at kickball, okay? Has anybody in the world ever struck out at kickball? I was the guy who struck out at kickball. Terrible. So next day, guess what happens? They're picking teams for kickball. I got picked dead last, dead last. And then every day after that, for the whole fall semester, dead last every day. Christmas break came and I was like, that cannot stand, okay? This cannot be the way I live my life. And so I had 14 days of Christmas break. I decided I'm gonna practice kickball all day long, every day. I practice 16 hours a day, just kicking a ball against a wall. 16 hours every day for 14 days straight. Finally, the first day of spring semester came. I go out to the kickball field. I get picked last, per usual. But then my turn comes. The ball gets rolled, and I just blasted that ball into the next zip code, okay? There was a kid in outer Mongolia who had a kickball land on his head. That's how far it went home run. Then the next time I was up, same thing, home run with two other kids on base. I got three runs with that one kick. It was amazing. And so the next day, we go out to play kickball. Guess who gets picked first? I want Matt on my team. It was such an amazing feeling getting called. Well, here's the difference between kickball and Christianity. When God calls you, it's not because of your skills, your knowledge, your strength, your holiness. Nothing like that. He said to Israel in Deuteronomy 7, the Lord has had his heart set on you, and he chose you. He called you, not because you were more numerous than all peoples, for you are the fewest of all peoples. No, it's because the Lord loved you. Because the Lord loved you. That's why he calls you. Because he loves you. Not because he needs you. Not because he can use you. Because he loves you. It's not utilitarian when God calls you. It's relational when God calls you. Don't miss that, okay? Don't miss that. Being called by God gives you a new relationship. Gives you a new relationship. That's what it said in verse 9. You're called into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's what you're called into is a new relationship. And that relationship, as we'll see all through 1 Corinthians, that's going to change everything about your life. Having the relationship you have with the King of the universe is going to change everything about the way you live your life. Because if you're called in Christ, then number two, you're going to be sanctified in Christ. That's who you are. You're sanctified in Christ. Paul said in verse two, the Corinthians are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called as saints. With all those in every place. Okay, he's talking about you here. All those in every place who call in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. He's talking about you. You're sanctified. You're a saint. Did you know that? When you introduce yourself to people, you can be like, hey, my name's Saint Matt. You can say that. That is your title. It's amazing. That's a title you've been given if you're in Christ. Look at what it says in Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10 says, by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are sanctified. That's such a huge verse. By one offering, Christ has perfected everything about you. He's perfected forever those who are sanctified. His offering changed everything. His death took away your sin, and it made you sanctified. His resurrection gave you new life, and it made you perfect. Even though you don't always act sanctified, and perfect. Man, the Corinthians, they're, they're as unsanctified as you can be. It's almost like they had a bucket list of sins that they wanted to try before they died. Almost like that. We're going to see that in this book. It's like they have this, this alphabetized list. Oh, hey, Christmas, what letter are we on this week? D. Okay, what's listed under D? Drunkenness. Well, we've been drunk plenty of times. no, 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 no. It says, drunkenness in church. Oh, we haven't tried that yet. Yeah, we'll see that in this book. They tried everything. If you could imagine a sin or an error that a church might fall into, the Corinthians fell hard. Hard. And still, Paul says, you are sanctified in Christ Jesus. You are called saints. He says in verse 8, you'll be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ because God is faithful. Yeah. Because your position depends on God's faithfulness, not your faithfulness. Your position is defined as holiness even if your practice is defined as unholiness. Hopefully your practice over time changes to match your position, but if you're in Christ, you are blameless blameless, like Christ. You're sanctified in Christ. That's a brand new identity that you've been given. Don't miss that, family. Being sanctified means you have a new identity. Brand new identity. Let that truth sink in. Let that sink in. You're not the same person you were before. You're not a sinner. You're a saint who sometimes sins. That's your new identity. If you've ever been through a 12-step program, you were taught to identify yourself by your weakness for the rest of your life. Hi, my name's Matt, and I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Matt. That's, that's how you were taught to identify yourself. But here's the thing. When you're in Christ, your identity isn't defined by your sin. It's defined by your Savior. It's defined by the way he sanctified you. You are a saint, and you're not a, not a hyphenated saint. You're not an alcoholic Christian. You're a saint who struggles with substances. You're not a rageaholic Christian. You're a saint who struggles with anger. You're not a gay Christian. You're a saint who struggles with same-sex attraction. That's who you are. Your weakness and your sin, that's not what defines you anymore. Your savior is what defines you. You've got a new identity. You are a saint. And so, family, that's how you overcome your messiness. You remember who you are. You remember that you are sanctified in Christ, blameless in Christ. And then, number three, remember that you are rich in Christ. You are rich. Paul said in verse 5, you are enriched in him in every way. Enriched in Christ. What that means is you've got everything you need. Everything you need. Like it says in Psalm 34, Lions may grow weak and hungry, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Lions may grow weak and hungry, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. If there was anything that would be good for you to have, you would have it right now. You would have it. You were like, yeah, I don't know if that's true. I mean, I can think of 10 good things that I don't have right now. No. If it would be good for you to have, you would have it right now. If you don't have it, that means it's not good. Not for you, not in this season, not right now. Every single thing that's good for you, you already have it. You've got all the resources you need. You've got all the wisdom you need. You've got all the skills and abilities you need. Like Paul said in verse 7, you do not lack any spiritual gift. You don't lack anything. God has given you everything you need to do everything he asks. You already have it. So that's a new power that is now available to you. Don't miss that, family. Being rich in Christ means you've got a new power. You've got a brand new power. You've got everything you need for holiness in life, for ministry in the church, for a mission to the world. You've got everything you need. Paul said you are enriched in him in every way, in all speech and all knowledge. Speech and knowledge. And I know I I think he said that on purpose, because maybe even back then, speech and knowledge were the things that most Christians felt most insecure about. Studies show that most of you guys are more scared of death than you are of public speaking. I'm sorry, other way around. I flipped that. You're more scared of public speaking than you are of death. And it's not just speaking to, to groups of people. That's not what makes most Christians nervous even speaking to individuals about our faith, that that makes us really nervous. You're going, man, I don't know what to say. I don't have the gift of speech. I don't know how to answer their questions. I don't have the gift of knowledge. And Paul says, bro, that's just not true. That's not true. You are enriched in him in every way, in all speech and all knowledge. You've got everything you need for holiness in your own life and for you to be able to bless the people around you in life through the grace and truth of Jesus. I mean, you've got your story. That's what we were talking about this past Tuesday, Talk Story Tuesday, learning how to share our story in a way that unleashes God's story. Because God's story is all about creation, fall, redemption, and restoration, and your story kind of matches the same pattern. And so you can tell people about how God created you uniquely, but then how you fell away from him, how you rebelled against him, and how he responded by redeeming you and restoring you through the grace of Jesus. You can do it. You can share your story and let that lead to God's story because you are enriched in him in every way in all speech and all knowledge. If you're going, yeah, that sounds nice, but the person that I really need to share my faith with, the person that I really need to share the gospel with, it's family. And it's so hard with family. I know. That's absolutely true. But this week in our community group, group, we were praying for someone in our group who sensed this strong urge from the Lord to share the gospel with her auntie, her auntie who has just shut down every spiritual conversation ever just shut it down right at the beginning. But she felt like she just needed to share the gospel with her auntie. And so our group was praying hard. And so after she had her auntie over and she shared the gospel, here's what her auntie texted her. She said, I'm so thankful for the generosity you've shown in opening your home and your heart and your faith. I have to admit that I feel closer to God than ever. I feel a peacefulness from your prayers. Now I want to explore my spiritual life more. I want to hear more. Amazing. Praise God. That is so encouraging. And that's how God works. That's how God works. You want to know how to deal with messiness in your life? Remember that Jesus Christ has waded into the mess with you and that He has strengthened you, enriched you to be able to wade into the mess the lives of the people around you. You've got everything you need because you're in Christ. So family, it's it's time to start leaning into who you are. It's time to do that. That's what the whole rest of this book is gonna be all about. It's time to start acting like who God's made you to be. You're called in Christ. You're sanctified in Christ. You are rich. You're rich in Christ. Family, it's time to start living like that's true. Let's pray together. Father, this is incredible, incredible things for us to hear, especially considering that they were written to people who seemed unsanctified, unholy, morally bankrupt. Thank you for this amazing, scandalous truth that our relationship with you is positional, not practical. That our standing before you is based on what Jesus Christ has done for us. It is based on your faithfulness, not ours. Thank you that you sent your son, that he didn't want to stay away from the mess, but he actively came and engaged with the mess. And he's still here through his Holy Spirit, living inside of us, experiencing the messiness of our lives right along with us, mourning with us, but overcoming the mess through us. Thank you for that reality. And Lord, I pray that we would lean into who you've made us to be, through the power of Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray, amen.